Session number two is the first of two sessions on dialogue. In this first part, we want to better understand who we're talking to when we dialogue with lesbian or gay people. I know that the terms can get complicated because the terms change fairly regularly. When I grew up, the commonest term was homosexual or the pejorative term queer. Then that evolved into the term gay, which evolved into gay and lesbian, which evolved into lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning, et cetera, et cetera. Whichever terms you prefer, let's talk about the way we can improve our communication as the body of Christ with homosexual people. Ministry is, after all, largely, though not exclusively, about communication. I mean, I know that's not all it's about. It's about attitude. It's about gifting. It's about calling. It's about sovereignty. But largely, ministry is about communication. What kind of communication? Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Very simple job description. Speak the truth in love. Simple doesn't mean easy, does it? <laughs> but simple. I probably don't need to convince you that there is a ginormous communication problem between the body of Christ and the LGBTQ population. I am sure that some members of the body of Christ have contributed to that problem. I am sure that many people in the LGBTQ population have contributed to that problem, and I am sure that the culture has largely contributed to that problem. But our goal is not to assign blame, it is to improve approach. It doesn't do us much good to figure out who's to blame as much as it does good to improve our approach. Now, we do know, no matter how we improve our approach, no matter how lovingly and biblically we speak, we're going to be misrepresented. People will twist our words. We're going to be misunderstood. People are not going to get it. We're going to be misinterpreted. Happens all the time. So, key point, our responsibility as stewards of truth is not how the truth is received, but how the truth is handled. My responsibility does not have to do so much with how the truth I speak is received by people. My responsibility is how I am handling and expressing the truth myself. So I want to talk about how we personally minister and steward the truth, how we converse, how we inquire, and how we explain. Communication is all of those, right? Conversations, we listen, we speak, we listen, we speak. Inquiry, we ask questions. Good part of communication. Great way to build trust, by the way. And explain, we clarify our position. These days especially, it is not just enough to say, this is my position. We need to clarify our position. Not only what it is, but why it is. So with that in mind, in this session, let's look at three Cs. The context of our conversation with homosexual people, the content of our conversations with homosexual people, and the conversions we are seeking through our conversations. Let's start with context. I like the way Robert Penn Warren put it. Reality is not a function of the event as event, but of the relationship of that event to past and future events. That's rather broad and poetic. We could probably pick it apart. 
But I think a truth that he is putting out is whenever we have a conversation with someone, it is not just the content that is happening, it is also the context of the relationship. Content is very important. Context is important to consider. Suppose someone came up to you and said, hey, Ponchi, you sure look like dirt today. What are you, trying out for an extra in Night of the Living Dead? Now, how would you feel about that? Well, <laughs> you know, that's a normal response. Probably hit him, yeah. Well, now, not too long ago, one of my best friends said that to me. I didn't want to hit him. I wanted to hug him. Why? Because he and I go back, you know, almost 40 years. And we were meeting for breakfast, and it was early in the morning, and I had just rolled out of bed because I was running late, and I showed up looking indeed like somebody who was an extra in Night of the Living Dead. And he and I are good buddies. And as you know, men are brilliant. We love each other by insulting each other. The better we know each other, the meaner we are to each other. As I said, we're brilliant. So when two guys are really good friends, what, idiot, what are you thinking of? I don't know, jerk, what are you thinking of? Well, you're uglier than ever today. Well, not as ugly as you. Oh, bro, I sure love you, you know. I'm, yeah, I know, brilliant. That's the friendly repartee you can have with someone you're close to. Now, I haven't met most of you personally before today. If I had introduced myself to you and said, well, hey, Ponchi, you sure look like dirt today. What are you trying out for an extra as Night of the Living Dead? I would have thought, oh, no shortage of agape here. <laughs> wow. What's the difference? It's the same content, but a very different context, right? Isn't that one of the reasons the Samaritan woman was so blown away when a Hebrew male crosses racial, ethnic, and gender lines to go to a Samaritan female and say, can I have some water? And her first response is about context. How is it that you, a Hebrew, are asking me, a Samaritan, for a cup of water? It's very disarming. The contents, context had a lot to do with her response to what he was saying. Now, context includes the kinds of LGBTQ people we are likely to encounter, some of what may have contributed to them being LGBTQ and assumptions that they may have about us. That's all involved in context. So let's look at, with that in mind, the origins of homosexuality, some of the common theories on origins, and then we'll look at some of the types of homosexual people we're likely to deal with. One of the commonest questions I get from people is why? Why did you ever feel attracted to the same sex? What caused you to feel attractions that seemed so at odds with what God intended? Three of the commonest theories on the origins of homosexuality would be the inborn, the developmental, and the spiritual. Let's look briefly at each of these. I want to point out the strengths and weaknesses of each of them and offer kind of a summation, my own take on what causes homosexuality. Uh, the first is the inborn. That is probably the most widely accepted, at least in Western culture these days. So people are just born that way. If you're gay, you're born that way. If you're lesbian, you were born that way. Case closed. Believe it or not, that was not the dominant viewpoint. It started to gain dominance in the, oh, around the early to mid-1990s. I remember in 1991, there were at least three very well-publicized studies put out by 
um, scientists and psychologists and psychiatrists, three separate studies, which indicated that there may be an inborn component to homosexuality. Now, most of the people who developed those studies and who did the research leading to those results were openly gay, and they did say on record, and I give them credit for their honesty, they said, we are hoping that our research will enhance acceptance of homosexuality as a normal condition. So clearly, they had an agenda, but that alone doesn't discount their research. You just have to keep in mind they definitely had an agenda. When they did the research, and it's very hard not to let your agenda color your research if you have that kind of a bias, and especially if you have a hoped-for outcome, your research then is not going to be geared towards just finding the truth, but finding the truth which you hope is the truth, sort of like an attorney wanting to win a case. And you'll often find this true. In fact, when I'm doing marriage counseling, I will often ask the couple, okay, are you married or are you attorneys? Are you really into winning your case with each other and proving who's right? Because attorneys do not care. Well, this is not fair to attorneys. The stereotypical attorney does not care about the truth. The attorney cares about winning the case, regardless of the truth. People working together as a team, they want the truth. So in this case, yes, there was certainly the bias inherent in these studies, but nonetheless, they made interesting observations about brain structure and possible hormonal developmental factors that could contribute to homosexuality. And all of these researchers were honest enough to say, we have not proven that homosexuality is inborn. And yet when the media picked up these study results, the front pages seemed to blare the same thing. New research indicates that people are born gay. And that got recycled and recycled and recycled. And as I once heard a gay activist say, repeated telling makes it so. If you want to get people to believe something, you don't have to prove it's true. Just repeat it often enough and they will assume it's true through the power of repetition. Well, if everybody's saying it, it must be true. Now, the upside of the inborn theory, which is simply that homosexuality is inborn, is that it does take into account the fact that we are created both body, soul, created, I should say, body, soul, and spirit, triune beings. The body, the nature we were born with, I should say, not just the physical body, but the temperament we are born with, may have much to do with what we feel and how we respond to life. Well, that is true, certainly. So the upside is it does recognize the role that the physical plays. We are body, soul, and spirit. The downside, first of all, it has never been conclusively proven that anyone is born homosexual. It may not seem that way because so many people presume that it has been proven that people are born gay. But as we speak today in August of 2022, no, it has not been proven that homosexuality is inborn. And doggone it, you'd think by now there'd be some pretty conclusive evidence. Because at least since 1991, people have sure been trying to provide such evidence. And since those initial three studies I mentioned, there has been many studies that have also reported that perhaps there are certain elements that may be inborn and that do contribute to the homosexual orientation. But the fact is, even if it were proven, and this is an important point to me, suppose we go home and we hear it blasted all over the media. You hear it on CNN and you hear it on Fox News. So you heard it from both sides. Everybody's saying it. 
born gay. We found a gay gene. Yes, it's, it's determined. People are born homosexual. That's the way they are. I, that, really, I think Frenchmen are going to quit drinking wine before that happens. I don't think there is ever going to be conclusive proof that homosexuality is inborn. I really don't. But even if there was, okay, would that change our position? Would I make a public apology and say, I'm sorry for all these years I said that homosexuality is a sin? No. Because all those studies would tell us if they were proven to be true is what we've already known. We're born in sin. And because we're born in sin, it's entirely possible that a number of different sinful impulses or desires or tendencies may be inborn. Which is why I often say, as I said earlier, we are all created by God, but we are not all God created us to be. So that is the inborn theory. It has merit only in this sense. It takes into account the fact that we are physical beings and that we are born a certain way, not only with a certain body, but with a certain temperament. And that temperament may well contribute to much of what we experience. That's a valid point. Where the theory becomes invalid, if you build a, a, a strong case on it, is that there is to this day no conclusive proof that homosexuality is inborn. That leads to the developmental theory. The developmental theory was probably the most popular from the beginning of psychiatry. Psychoanalytic theory initially taught that homosexuality was a disorder largely birthed by early dynamics, relational family dynamics in a child's life, and certain unconscious responses to those dynamics which morphed into homosexuality. The developmental theory which was popularized among many Christian theorists was something like this. If a boy does not feel adequately loved by the man or men in his life, he will develop a deep hunger for male love. As he hits a critical developmental point, that hunger may become sexualized. Okay, I'm a poster boy for that theory. I felt very unwanted by the men in my life as a boy. I was violated by a man when I was very young. And that left me with a deep hunger for male bonding, but also with a conviction that that bonding was not available to me. Now, you know what it's like in the schoolyard. If you are an eight-year-old kid and you feel insecure because you don't feel that you got validated in the core relationships of your life and you go into the schoolyard insecure and hesitant, what do all the other kids do? Well, I'll tell you what they don't do. They don't gather around you and say, oh, my goodness, you seem to be suffering same-sex psychological deficits. How can we affirm you? No, the little darlings peck you to death. Because what's one of the worst crimes you can commit as a kid? Be different. I felt different. I gave off the vibe that I was different. And I felt very cut off from other boys. Now, at that time of development, same-sex bonding is very critical, isn't it? Why do you think all the girls gather together and say, ooh, the boys have cooties, and the boys have the clubhouse that says girls stay out? There's a reason for that. Developmentally, it is critical that we both bond with and identify with members of the same sex. And that solidifies our identity as males and females. So by the time puberty kicks in, now we are ready, both physically and psychologically, to take on the challenge of relating to the other, the opposite sex union. But what if you never got the bonding and the puberty kicks in, so the body is ready, but the emotions are not? That's frequently, I believe, when the emotional desire becomes a sexualized desire, almost like the wires get crossed.
I know definitively that that was true of me. I am convinced of that. Does that mean it is true of all homosexual people? No. In fact, it's not. I've known too many gay men who had wonderful father-son relationships and good bonding with their brothers and good bonding with their peers at school and who were very secure with members of the same sex. I've known plenty of lesbian women who had wonderful relationships with their mothers and their dads and there was no early trauma to report of and none of this theory would apply to them, which is why I frequently say theories on the origins of homosexuality are like bathing suits. One size definitely does not fit all people. And you certainly don't want to try to stuff all people into the same size bathing suit. So it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it is with theories on homosexuality. They may be applicable, but you never want to say, oh, I heard the testimony of somebody who was molested as a boy and didn't have solid male bonding with he was a kid, and that desire then for bonding became sexualized. That's what I heard him say, oh, that must be what happened to you. No. We listen to people. We don't impose theories on people. We take each person as a unique individual, as we must. That, that too, should be standard ministry approach. So the downside of the developmental theory is it answers some questions about some cases, but definitely not about all. Then finally, there's the spiritual theory, which basically says that homosexuality is something that is evidence of some sort of demonic either oppression or possession. Demonic oppression from without or possession from within. Now, the upside to that, I know most believers do not believe that homosexuality represents demon possession. I certainly don't. But the upside of it is it at least recognizes there is a role Satan plays in all of this. And there is. I do not believe Satan creates sexual sin. But Satan rejoices in sexual sin. Satan seduces to sexual sin. Satan will do what he can to confuse an individual into believing that sexual sin is a legitimate option. When I sinned, I chose. I made a conscious decision. I decided, and I gave myself permission. That was all me. But absolutely, Satan was over here enticing, encouraging. He was the cheerleading squad. I still had to run the play. I ran the play. But yes, absolutely, he was the cheerleading section, as he always is. So the upside to this theory is it recognizes that absolutely demonic influence can play into many tragic decisions people make and many tragic conditions people have. That is true. The downside, in my opinion, is it terribly oversimplifies the issue. We do know this, in both Testaments, old and new, when sexual sin is described, it is described as a problem of the flesh, not of the devil. Thereby, we are called to crucify the flesh, mortify the old nature, repent of the deliberate transgression, not cast the demon out. Does that mean it is impossible for someone who is homosexual to be oppressed or even possessed by a demon? Of course not. Well, that's entirely possible. But I would not to look to that as the cause of homosexuality. I would look to that as a problem in addition to the homosexuality. And by and large, I think you will find when you're dealing with this issue, you're dealing with the lust of the flesh and the wounding of the soul. 
the flesh we are not called to cast out, we're called to cast it off. We are called to crucify it. The soul we are not called to repent of, we're called to be healed of the wounds of the soul, you see. So in that sense, I do not believe the demonic theory adequately addresses the issue. So what points can we conclude? All sinful tendencies are symptoms of our fallen nature. It's pretty simplistic, I know. But I think that's what we can say with integrity. I can say perhaps the developmental theory plays into this person's life. Perhaps there are inborn tendencies that played into it. Perhaps there are demonic influences. I don't know. But I do know this. All human beings are born with sinful tendencies. All sinful tendencies are, then, are manifestations of fallen nature. Now, many manifestations of fallen nature are universal. We all relate to them, right? We can all relate to selfishness, to dishonesty, to greed, to lust of some kind. Those are universal. And there are some manifestations of fallen nature that are unique to some individuals, and most of us don't experience them. I get that. So I read about crimes some people commit, and I think, how could you ever have even wanted to do a thing like that? Well, some people do. I read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and even with my background, I see some behaviors in that book, and I think, those two books I should say, and I think, wow. You mean somebody would actually want to do such a thing? Yes, some people would. I may not relate to it, but that doesn't mean there are others who don't relate to it. So all of them basically are fruit from the same tree. All of them are manifestations of fallen human nature. Now, because we are fallen human beings, we may be born with a temperament which is susceptible to certain things. I do not believe homosexuality is inborn. I do believe that many homosexual people were born with temperaments that made them susceptible to homosexuality when other variables came into play. And that could account for the fact that, for example, I was raised in the same home, the same situation as two older brothers, neither of whom ever dealt with homosexuality. Why me and not them? I think largely it had to do with the temperament I was born with. I was receptive to certain responses they, they would not have been receptive to. I think that plays into the inborn element of it. I do not believe people are born gay or lesbian. I do believe many people are born with temperaments or personality structures that will make them susceptible to homosexuality later in life if other variables come into play. I believe the developmental theory has some merit into it in that our early relationships largely shape the way we view ourselves. That much is true. That does not necessarily mean that a person's homosexuality was developed by those early relationships, but early relationships do shape us, so there is merit to that. But I think essentially, notwithstanding the fact that demonic influence exists, I don't think homosexuality represents demonic possession or even demonic oppression, but I believe we are always dealing with that unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And to some extent, all three will have some influence on many of the conditions we have and many of the decisions we make. So we can conclude with integrity that we don't always know, in fact, we frequently don't know the specifics as to why someone is homosexual. Do we need to know that? No, not really. I mean, I think it's nice that we can discover to what extent certain things have influenced us. I found that very helpful in my own counseling. Yes, 
to what extent we can know why we feel what we feel, we should make that odyssey and try to discover what it is. But always with this understanding, the how is more important than the why. Why I feel the way I feel, why I am the way I am is important to a point, but far more important is how do I deal with what I feel and the way I am? Because one could spend years in analysis exploring why one feels the way one feels and might reach some accurate conclusions or might go on an endless quest of navel gazing, which is never satisfied, both could happen, but the reality is, even when you understand why you have certain desires, you are still faced with this challenge. What are you gonna do about those desires? That's where obedience comes in, and this is why I tell my clients, as much as possible, we will explore your family dynamics and your background to better understand what has shaped your sexuality. But far more important will be what we learn as to how you can manage those feelings when they come up and live an obedient, righteous life. Now, that being the case, let's look at some of the types of homosexual people we are likely to be in dialogue with. There is the militant. There is what I would call the moderate, the more moderate or the out and proud. There is the religious, and then there is also the repentant. Let's look at each. The militant is someone who is committed to the normalization of homosexuality and has no tolerance for dissent. When I was a gay militant for a season, my primary passion was get everybody to believe that homosexuality is normal, and anybody who won't believe it, I'm going to make your life hard. That's gay militancy in a nutshell. It's also, I believe, the essence of the modern gay rights movement. That's a movement committed to normalization at all levels of society. That's why there is so much tension between the gay community and the church. Let's look at that tension for a minute because I think it largely plays into what we're discussing today. A lot of us who are my age or over are scratching our heads saying, what happened? <laughs> How did we ever get here? And I don't believe anybody can come up with an exhaustive answer to that question, but I do know this. Sometime around the 1960s in particular, there was a shift. Prior to that, what you heard in church was largely reinforced in the culture. In American culture, this really was true. What you heard in church Sunday morning would be largely reinforced in public school on Monday, and it would be reinforced on the television shows you watched in the way the news was reported, in the movies and plays that you watched, and in the books you read. This is not to say I believe America was entirely what we would call a Christian nation. I'm leery of that term because I don't believe nations get saved, people get saved, but America absolutely, unquestionably, was largely influenced by Judeo-Christian uh, traditions and principles and absolutely influenced by the Bible itself and largely influenced by Christian men and women. That's undeniable, that's history, that's factual. And that being the case, the Christian influence was broadly felt in all parts of the culture. And then a shift started to happen among primary cultural influences. Gradually, pillars of influence, psychiatry, the news media, the entertainment industry, the education industry, all started to shift 
with the upheaval of the 60s, the sexual revolution of the 70s, to a large extent, much of the materialism and cynicism of that, that was evident, well, it always has been, but certainly in the 80s, the shifting among these institutions was towards a redefinition, redefinition of normal sexuality, redefinition of family, redefinition of gender. All of these influencing institutions shifted in their positions and have now shifted to solidly pro-gay advocacy, rock-solid advocacy. And they have largely influenced the culture, haven't they? And now the institutions and the culture are looking at us saying, okay, guys, your turn. Shift. And largely we're saying, we can't. I mean, we don't want to start a fight here but we can't go where you want us to go. You shifted. That didn't mean that we had to shift. And what I believe has been difficult for the modern church in America is that we are dealing with a sort of disconnect, even hostility from the culture that generationally we have not been accustomed to because we did have much more harmony with the culture on key issues. And that's one of the reasons I believe we got kind of caught off guard like, what do you mean? Because I believe what I believe. I'm a homophobe and a bigot and a racist and a misogynist. Where'd that come from? Well, it came from the shifting. And now the demand that we shift as well. Which is why I often say when people say, well, how come you're so obsessed with all of this? Why are you so aggressive about all this? I'm not. I am responding to the aggressive pressure to shift in my position, which is something I cannot do, which leaves us a lot like Peter and John when they said, well, look, guys, you're telling us not to teach in the name of Jesus. Uh, you judge for yourselves whether or not a person should obey man over God. But for our part, no, 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 we cannot help but speak the things we have seen and heard. We just can't go where you want us to go. That's, that's where I believe the real tension is building between the church and gay militancy. Now, wherever there is militancy of any kind, you'll find the misinformed, the convicted, the inconvenienced, and the true believers. Let's look at all of these. The misinformed, there are simply people who have been misinformed to believe that the Christian viewpoint is something which it is not. Now, that's nothing new, right? Jesus said, look at this temple, it's going to be torn down. People got misinformed into believing. Did you hear what he said? He's going to tear down the temple. The guy's an insurrectionist. He's dangerous to Rome. He's dangerous to peace. Kill him. Misinformation. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. There are those who are misinformed. And I think they are often misinformed because they're susceptible to a righteous cause. They want to be part of a righteous cause. They join what they think is a righteous cause without knowing that it is not. Then there are the convicted those whose consciences are testifying against them. Conscience is not always convenient, is it? I mean, good heavens. People say your conscience is your best friend. I don't know about that. Sometimes he and I don't get along at all. If my conscience is testifying against me, as mine did when I was a part of the LGBTQ community, and you decide, I decide to ignore my conscience, the last thing I'm going to want is you coming along telling me something that my conscience is trying to tell me, which I'm trying to ignore. If I am trying to shut my conscience up, I'm going to want to shut you up too. That's why oftentimes when I hear somebody just thundering away, I'm gay and I'm proud and I'm happy. Can't you tell I'm happy? 
Yeah, I see the peace just dripping from you, bro. Sure. Mm -hmm. I often want to say, if you're so sure of yourself, why are you so insecure about somebody like me? Because I've spoken at countless conferences or churches where people show up and do everything they can to shut the whole event down because they think we're wrong. Well, okay, um, I think atheists are wrong. If there's an atheist convention down the street from me, I'm not going to show up there and try to shut them down. I don't agree with them. But I, I, I will grant they got the right to speak, even though I think they are wrong. I don't feel, I know where I stand. I know what I believe. Therefore, I have no need to try to burn their building down or shut them up. Isn't that interesting that people have the need, or at least think they have the need to shut us up? I think oftentimes that's because, man, we are saying something that their conscience is saying that they don't want to hear. And that also is nothing new, right? Isn't conscience interesting the way it plays out with the gospel? Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. The spirit fell. It's so awesome. And he's bold. And that sermon goes out there. And Luke says that the men who heard it, their, their, their consciences were cut to the quick, like pierced asunder. And they responded properly. Okay, men and brethren, what should we do? That's wonderful. People got saved. But then later on, about Acts chapter 7, old Stephen is preaching and Luke uses the same phrase for the religious council that was hearing him. He preaches a council or a, a sermon confronting the council with the fact that they have both missed and murdered the Messiah. And their consciences, he uses the same Greek word, were cut asunder, but their response, they went ballistic and they killed him. That's where it goes one way or another. We will either respond redemptively to our conscience or we will do something else, usually something very non-redemptive. So that's another reason I believe for gay militancy. I believe a lot of people who are militant really don't feel good about what they're doing and they're taking it out by trying to kill the messenger rather than adhere to the message. Then there are the inconvenience. Let's not underestimate this, okay? Wherever the gospel is preached, someone is inconvenienced. That is axiomatic. Wherever the gospel is preached, someone will be inconvenienced. Because we want to inconvenience anybody? No. But because we will, it's inevitable. Think about, just for example, Paul preaching in Ephesus. Ephesus is a city largely given over to the worship of Diana. One of the primary sources of good trade in Ephesus is uh, the manufacturing of idols to the goddess Diana. They have a ginormous temple there that's really a magnificent structure, and <laughs> the goddess Diana is good for business. If you manufacture little idols and shrines to her, you can make some good money. Now, Paul preaches uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. People turn away from the worship of Diana to the true God. They're bringing out their idols into the middle of the city and burning them. And old Demetrius, who's one of the key manufacturers of those idols, goes, whoa. And he calls a meeting with all the other manufacturers of, of idols. And he says, we make a good living off of our trade. And this guy, Paul, is preaching something which is inconveniencing our trade. We got to shut him down. He wasn't even saying Paul is wrong. He was saying Paul is inconvenient. I believe that much of what we stand for is inconvenient to people who want to control our nation. Here, I hope I am not being so much political as I hope to be rather prophetic. I believe we are a nation on the, on the brink of being controlled. And I believe those who wish to control the nation have a vested interest in dismantling the family unit. Dismantle the family unit 
and you dismantle individualism, and you dismantle the work ethic, you dismantle basic protective instincts. Dismantle the family unit and you take government control. And I believe many people who both financially and by other means of influence support the LGBTQ movement may not even believe that homosexuality is normal, but they do have the goal of acquiring power over the individual because identity politics constitute a big government dream, whatever those identity politics may be. Fracture the people and you will have everybody turning on everybody else. Well, then somebody's got to step in, don't they? That's the point. And for that reason, I believe that our gospel message, though we do not intend it to be political, has high political ramifications. Where Christianity thrives, individual thinking thrives, independence thrives, freedom of speech, conscience, and religion thrive, freedom of industry thrives. When those freedoms are thriving, people will not allow a big entity to take them over other than God. So those of us who are saying we will bow to no state, to no official, to no government, we are not convenient. And I think that largely plays into the pushback we're getting over this issue. But then, of course, there are true believers, in all fairness. Not everybody who opposes us is doing so because of a political inconvenience or because their conscience is bothering them or they're misinformed. There are people who really believe you and I are dangerous, bigoted people and we must be stopped, and they really believe that. Can people be sincere and wrong? You know they can. Saul of Tarsus was sincere and wrong. Remember, later in life he testified, I have lived before God in good conscience all my life. Wow! Because for some of his life, that guy was wrong. But he lived before God in good conscience. I think it is fair to say that the maniacs who drove airplanes into our buildings on 9-11 were doing so in what they probably felt was good conscience towards God. They were true believers. How many cultists who've led people into mass murder or mass suicide were true believers? How many Nazis were true believers? There are a lot of true believers out there. And they really believe we are dangerous of people. So our approach always must be to attempt to reason with people and to defend without attacking. That is to say, there is a place for trying to reason with people based on our common understanding of what is reasonable. So I like to often pose the question, you are telling me that I am hateful because of my belief. Do you believe anything? Of course I do. Do you believe anybody is wrong? Of course I do. Do you hate everybody who you believe is wrong? Of course not. I just believe there's wrong. I, I don't, that doesn't mean I hate them. Well, thank you. I couldn't have said it better myself. That's the point, is basically I am trying to reason with them based on the fact that all people have a belief system. All people believe some things are right and some things are wrong. Therefore, it is unreasonable and unfair to assume that if someone holds a belief system different than yours, that automatically makes them a dangerous, hateful person. That is the militant, then there is the moderate, who is the homosexual person who does not have a particular agenda or intolerance. That is to say they don't have the sort of political agenda the militant has. Uh, in all fairness, I think everybody has an agenda. If you want something and you're willing to do anything to advance what you want, then you've got an agenda. Is that bad? No. I've got a lot of agendas. I don't apologize for that. 
Um, but I think as opposed to the militant, our response is to defend without attacking. I will not allow you to restrict me or take away my liberties. I will vote to keep you from doing that. I will wisely use my power to vote. I will use my power to speak. I will use my power to resist. But I will not attack you because I'm not going to become what you say I am. So in that sense, I will remain Christ-like while speaking the truth. I am not going to allow you to coerce me into not loving you, nor will I allow you to coerce me into silence. That's a response to the militant. To the moderate, the response is more, well, I understand you're homosexual. You believe that that is right. You're out and proud. Can we talk about where you've been and where I've been? And can I share with you what happened in my life that turned my life around? And I would love you to better understand it, at least to consider it. So to the moderate, we evangelize as good neighbors. We share the gospel. We don't try to convert people from homosexuality. We try to see people converted from death to life. That is the primary issue. Then there are those who are religious, identifying as both gay and Christian. Now, as I mentioned, we have books available, and I have an ebook in particular I'd like you to look into. We'll send it to you for free if you just fill out one of my cards there, which explains some of the background of what I call the gay religious movement and explains some of the commonest arguments you will hear from the gay religious movement and gives you some answers that you can apply with understanding. But while the identity as gay Christian is becoming more common, as more and more people are saying, well, I have decided that I'm gay and God made me that way. I don't apologize for it. I don't repent of it. In fact, I believe the Bible condones it. You people are the ones who are reading the Bible the wrong way. In our last session, we will talk more about pro-gay theology and how to respond to it. But for now, let's remember that this is not a secondary issue. This is a primary issue. Any issue that cuts to the heart of created intent, such as marriage and sexuality, is a primary issue. So our approach to those who are gay and Christian would be to say, okay, let's better understand what the Word of God has to say about this. To the non-believer, it's one thing. I would talk about whether or not God exists and whether or not the claims of Jesus are true. But when somebody says, I'm a believer, I believe in the Bible, I believe the Bible says this, I say, okay, great. We both share a belief that the Bible is authoritative and inspired by God. Let's look at what it really says, both in the original language and the context, and the content as well. So to the person identifying as gay and religious, we would offer not so much the defense without attacking as we would to the militant or the desire to evangelize as we would to the moderate, but rather correction. The word of God is a tool for correction, not a, not a weapon, but a tool by which we hope to see people corrected and brought to truth. Then there are finally those who are repentant. Those are Christians who are aligned with scripture. Side note, in our churches locally, these are the folks we are most likely to be interacting with within the church. Outside the church, in our family, social, and work relationships, we may encounter militants and moderates and religious gays. Within the church, most likely, we will be having people who are aligned with Scripture saying, well, they may or may not say it, but the fact is, they would be saying at least to themselves, I'm attracted to the same sex. I know it would be a sin to yield to those attractions. I want to live an obedient life. And often the question is unspoken, but it's there nonetheless. So what do I do with all this? What do I do with the fact that through no choice of my own, I'm attracted to the same sex? 
and have no attraction to the opposite sex. I would like to be with someone of the same sex. I know God forbids it. How do I handle that? Can I be open about this? Is it safe to confess my struggle? Do you have any hope for me? Do you have any ideas for me on how to manage all of this? That is the perhaps unspoken question that the repentant would be asking to us. And our approach to them would certainly not be to defend without attacking or to evangelize their born again or to correct. But rather, I believe we should be celebrating, hey, this is awesome. You are actually saying to me that in 2022, you, my brother, you, my sister, are saying no when the whole darned world seems to be telling you you should be saying yes. Wow. Praise God for you. Praise God for the decision you're making. Praise God for your life. You are swimming upstream. That's awesome. And I'm swimming upstream too. And as someone who has been swimming upstream, maybe I can offer you some of the ideas that have helped for me. Here's how you get into the word daily. Here's how you beef up your prayer life. Here's how you handle the question of accountability and confessing sin and or sinful temptation to trusted people. And here's how you integrate better into the church. And here's how you get past some of the lies that you might have believed about yourself. See, this is all basic discipleship and Christian community and body ministry. But that is how we respond to the repentant. And we also, of course, say to them, as we, I think, would say to any believer, uh, welcome to the club. We all wrestle with something. You've got yours. I've got mine. Let's encourage each other on the way. Now, Proverbs 25:11 says, a word fitly spoken is like an apple of gold. My hope is that through these sessions, we better develop our ability to speak the word that is fit for the occasion and by that be of sincere benefit to the people who hear us. Okay, let's take a 10-minute break and come back at 11.05. We'll have our next session on dialogue, and uh, then we'll break for lunch at 12 noon.